Chapter Twenty Two of A Knight of the White Cross by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two, The Struggle at the Breach. Two hours later, Coretto and Gervais were roused by the arrival of a hundred knights in place of the previous garrison. These bore the news that the Pasha had sent in a flag of truce to ask for an armistice until sundown, to enable him to carry off for burial the bodies of those who had fallen in the attack. The request had been willingly granted, but Diabason had at the same time thought it well to send down a strong reinforcement to the garrison to prevent any attempt at treachery on the part of the Turks. I have seldom heard pleasanter news, Coretto said, for just as I fell asleep I was wondering how we were to rid ourselves of the corpses of the infidels. By tomorrow the place would have become unbearable, and though living the Turks could not turn us out of the tower, they would, when dead, speedily have rid the place of us. In half an hour a number of Muslim vessels were seen approaching. Coretto did not wish the Turks to imagine that he doubted their good faith, and while directing the main body of knights to remain in concealment near the breach, he placed two on sentry duty on the crest of the ruins, and with four other knights and gervais went down in complete armor to salute the officer in command of the burying party. As he landed from the boats, the ships anchored a short distance out, and a number of boats rowed from them to the shore. As the Turkish officer landed, Coretto saluted him, and said in Arabic, I give you courteous greeting, sir. When the cannon cease to sound, and swords are sheathed, there is no longer animosity between brave men, and no braver than those whose bodies lie stretched there, breathed the air of heaven, if, sir, I and the knights with me do not uncover our heads, it is from no want of respect for the dead, but solely because we dare not stand bareheaded under the fierce rays of the sun. The Turk answered with equal courtesy, complimenting the knights on their defense. Had I not seen it with mine own eyes, he said, I should have deemed it altogether impossible that so small a number of men could thus for hours have withstood the attacks of some of the best of the sultan's troops. Tales have come down to us from our fathers of the marvellous prowess of the knights of your order, and how at Smyrna, at Acre, and elsewhere they performed such feats of valour that their name is still used by Turkish mothers as a bugbear to frighten their children. But the stories have always seemed to me incredible. Now I perceive they were true, and that the present members of the order in no way fall short of the valour of their predecessors. The knights remained with the Turkish commander and some of his officers while the work of collecting and carrying away the dead was performed the conversation on their side being supported by Coretto and Gervais. No less than seven hundred bodies were carried down to the boats, besides a great many wounded by the artillery fire. 
None were, however, found breathing among the great pile of dead at the upper part of the breach, for the axes and double-handed swords of the knights had, in most of the cases, cleft through turban and skull. "'This represents but part of our loss,' the Turkish commander said sadly as the last party came down with their burdens to the boats. "'At least as many more must have perished in the sea.' either in their endeavors to escape when all was lost in the destruction of their vessels by fire by the shot from your batteries or by being run down by your galleys ah sir knight if it had not been for the appearance of your fire-ships methinks the matter might have ended differently in that i altogether agree with you Coretto said we were indeed well-nigh spent and must have soon succumbed had it not been that the fire-ships arrived to our rescue you have a fair right to claim that the victory would have remained in your hands had not those craft gone out and snatched it from you then with salutes on both sides the turks took their places in the boats and the knights returned to the fort as soon as darkness came on a large body of slaves were marched down from the town and under the direction of the knights labored all night at the mound removing great quantities of the fallen stone and rubbish in a line halfway up it and piling them above so as to form a scarp across the mound that would need ladders to ascend another party worked at the top of the mound and there built up a wall eight feet high the work was completed by daylight and the knights felt that they were now in a position to resist another attack should Paleologus again send his troops to the assault. The night had passed quietly. There was a sound of stir and movement in the Turkish battery, but nothing that would excite the suspicion of a large body of troops being in motion. When it became light, it was seen that the Turkish ships had sailed away to their previous anchorage on the other side of the island and although at considerable intervals the great cannon hurled their missiles against the fort, it was evident that, for the time at least, the attack was not to be pressed at that point. A fresh body of slaves, however, came down from the town to relieve those who had been all night at work, and the repair of the defenses was continued, and with greater neatness and method than had been possible in the darkness. At eight o'clock the bells of St. John's Church gave notice that a solemn service of thanksgiving for the repulse of the enemy was about to be held. Notice had been sent down early to the tower, and all the knights who could be spared, without too greatly weakening the garrison, went up to attend it. The service was conducted with all the pomp and ceremony possible, and after it was over a great procession was formed to proceed to the shrine where a picture of the virgin held in special reverence by the order was placed as it wound through the streets in splendid array the grand master and officials in all their robes of state the knights in full armor and the mantles of the order while the inhabitants in gala costume lined the streets windows and housetops the ladies waving scarves and scattering flowers down on the knights the roar of great cannon in the south side of the city showed that the turks had commenced the attack in another quarter 
Without pausing, the procession continued its way, and it was not until the service in the chapel had been concluded that any steps were taken to ascertain the direction of the attack. As soon as it was over, the knights hastened to the walls. During the night the Turks had transported their great basilisks with other large pieces of artillery from the camp to the rising ground on the south side of the city, and had opened fire against the wall covering the Jews' quarter, and at the same time against the tower of St. Mary on the one hand and the Italian tower on the other. From other commanding spots huge mortars were hurling great fragments of rock and other missiles broadcast into the town. The portion of the wall selected for the attack showed that the Turks had been well informed by their spies of the weak points of the defense. The wall behind which the Jews' quarter lay was, to all appearance, of thick and solid masonry. But this was really of great age, having formed part of the original defenses of the town before the order had established itself there. The masonry, therefore, was ill-fitted to resist the huge balls hurled against it by the basilisks. The Langa province was in charge of this part of the wall, and leaving them for the present to bear the brunt of the storm, the Grand Master sent the knights who could be spared to assist the inhabitants to erect shelters against the storm of missiles falling in the town. Sheds with sharply sloping roofs, constructed of solid timber, were built against the inner side of the walls, and beneath these numbers of the inhabitants found refuge. The work was performed with great celerity by the inhabitants, aided by the gangs of slaves, and in two or three days the townspeople were all in shelter, either in these sheds, in the vaults of the churches, or in other strongly constructed buildings. Among the missiles hurled into the town were balls filled with Greek fire, but the houses being entirely built of stone, no conflagrations of importance were caused by them, as a band of knights was organized specially to watch for these bombs, and whenever one of them was seen to fall, they hurried from their lookout to the spot, with a gang of slaves carrying baskets of earth and buckets of water, and quenched the flames before they had made any great way. The roar of the bombardment was almost continuous, and was heard at islands distant from roads, telling the inhabitants how the battle between the Christians and Muslims was raging. It was not long before the wall in front of the Jews' quarter began to crumble, and it was soon evident that it must, ere many days, succumb to the storm of missiles hurled against it. Diabasin lost no time in making preparations to avert the danger. He ordered all the houses in rear of the wall to be leveled. A deep semicircular ditch was then dug, and behind this a new wall constructed of the stones and bricks from the houses destroyed was built, and backed with an earthen rampart of great thickness and solidity. The work was carried on with extraordinary rapidity. The Grand Master himself set the example and throwing aside his robes and armor, labored with pick and shovel like the commonest laborer. This excited the people to the highest pitch of enthusiasm, and all classes threw themselves into the task. Knights and slaves, men, women, and children, and even the inmates of the convents and nunneries aided in the work, 
and when at last the outer wall fell, and the Turks thought that success was at hand, the Pasha saw with astonishment and dismay that entry to the city was still barred by a work as formidable as that which he had destroyed at an enormous expenditure of ammunition. There was now a short breathing time for the besieged, but the depression which the failure of their efforts excited among the Turks was shortly dispelled by the arrival of a ship with a dispatch from Constantinople, in which the Pasha was informed that the Sultan himself was about to proceed to Rhodes with a reinforcement of a hundred thousand men and a fresh park of artillery. Paleologus had some doubts as to whether the report was true or was merely intended to stimulate him to new efforts for the speedy capture of the place. Knowing well that the Grand Master was the heart and soul of the defense, and that the failure of the assault was mainly due to his energy and ability, he determined to resort to the weapon so frequently in use in Eastern warfare, that of assassination. To this end he employed two men, one a Dalmatian, the other an Albanian. These presented themselves before the walls as deserters, and as there was no reason for suspecting their tale, they were admitted within the gates, and welcomed as having escaped from enforced service. They soon spread the tale of the speedy coming of the Sultan with vast reinforcements, and as the Pasha had on the previous day caused salutes to be fired, and other demonstrations to be made, the news was readily credited, and caused the greatest dismay among the defenders. Some of the knights of the Italian and Spanish langs believed the prospect of a successful defense against so enormous a force was absolutely hopeless, and determined to put pressure upon Diabasin to treat for surrender before it became too late. They opened negotiations with an Italian named Filelfo, one of Diabasin's secretaries, who undertook to lay their opinion before the Grand Master. Diabasin at once summoned the knights concerned in the matter before him. They found him with several members of the council. "'Sir knights,' he said, "'I have heard from my secretary your opinions in the matter of a surrender, and since you are in such terror of the Muslim sultan, you have my full permission to leave the town, and more than that, I will myself secure your safe departure, which might be imperiled if your comrades, or even the inhabitants of the town, came to learn that you had advocated surrender. But, he went on, changing his tone from that of sarcasm to sternness, if you remain with us, see that the word surrender never again passes your lips, and be assured that, should you continue your intrigues in that direction, you shall meet with the fate you so justly deserve. Overwhelmed by the Grand Master's accusation and sternness, the Italian and Spanish knights threw themselves on their knees and implored him to grant them an early opportunity of retrieving their fault by battle with the infidel. Feeling that the lesson had been sufficiently severe, and that henceforth there would be no renewal of intrigues for a surrender, Diabasin forgave them, and promised them a place in the van when next the Muslims attacked. The incident had not without its advantage, 
for the two pretended deserters, believing that Thalelfo, who had also fallen under the displeasure of the Grand Master, would be ready to join in the conspiracy against his life, approached him. Thalelfo, who was greatly attached to Diabason, saw by their manner that they wished to engage him in some intrigue, and feigning great resentment and anger at his disgrace, led them on until they divulged the entire plot for Diabason's assassination, and made brilliant offers to him if he would afford them facilities for carrying it out, producing in proof of their power to do so a letter of the Pasha authorizing them to make such promises in his name. Philelfo at once divulged the whole plot to Diabason. The two men were immediately arrested, tried by the council, and sentenced to death. They were not, however, formally executed, for the populace, obtaining news of their treachery, broke in upon their guards, and tore them to pieces. Foiled in his attempt on the life of the Grand Master, the Pasha prepared for a renewal of the attack, and it was not long before the knights on the lookout at the Church of St. John perceived that the fort of St. Nicholas was again to be the scene of the attack. It was ere long discovered that a large number of men were busy some distance along the shore in building a long structure that could only be intended for a floating bridge. Among the sailors who had aided in the attack with the fire-ships were several men belonging to an English trader in the port. All who had done so had been handsomely rewarded for their conduct, and five of the Englishmen had afterwards gone to the English aberge and had asked to be enrolled for service against the Turks, as they were weary of remaining on board in idleness when there was work to be done. Their offer had been accepted, and they had, in common with all the sailors in the port, laboured at the construction of the inner wall. When that was completed, Sir John Boswell, under whose special charge they had been placed, said to Gervais, "'I think that I cannot do better than send these men down to St. Nicholas.' It is probable that now the Turks see that they can do nothing at the new breach. They may try again there. Sailors are accustomed to night watches, and there are many of our knights who are not used to such work, and can be better trusted to defend a breach than to keep a vigilant watch at night. Will you take these men down to Coretto, and tell him that he can sleep soundly if he has a couple of them on watch? One of them, Roger Jervis, who is the mate of their ship, can speak some Italian, and as he is in command of them, Coretto will find no trouble in making them understand him. St. Nicholas had now been put into a fair state of defense, as a party had been kept steadily at work there. Gervais had not been to the tower since the morning after the assault, and saw with satisfaction how much had been done to render it secure he found that Coretto was fast recovering from his wounds. As it seems, Sir Fabricius, he said after the first greetings to the knight, that the Turks will favor you with another visit. I have brought you five watchdogs. They are countrymen of mine, and were among those who navigated the fire-ships the other day. Sir John Boswell has sent them down. They are, of course, accustomed to keep watch at night. One of them is mate of their vessel, and will be in command of them. He speaks a little Italian, and so will understand any orders you may give him. I have been speaking to him as we came down. He will divide his men into two watches, and will himself be on guard all night. 
Will you assign them some quiet place where they can sleep in the daytime? They can erect a shelter with a piece of sailcloth and a few bits of board, and they will, of course, be furnished with food. I shall be very glad to have them, for I am always restless at night lest those on watch should close their eyes. You see, they have quite made up their minds that this fort will not be attacked again, and so are less inclined to be vigilant when they would be, did they think an attack was impending. Now that there was reason to believe that St. Nicholas might again be attacked, Gervais was frequently there with orders or inquiries from the Grand Master. A number of vessels in the harbor were fitted up as fire-ships, so as to be in readiness when the attack came. He was about to start early one morning when he saw Roger Jervis coming up with a heavy anchor on his shoulder. "'Why, what are you bringing that up here for?' he asked. "'Have you been diving, for I see your clothes are dripping with water?' "'Aye, aye, I have been in the water.' and the Italian commander told me to come straight up here to tell the Grand Master all about the story, and right glad am I to have met you, for I should have made but a poor fist of it alone. I don't know more of their lingo than just to talk a few words of it. Then you had better tell me the story before I take you in. Well, it was like this, sir knight. I had Hudson and Jeffreys posted upon the wall, and I thought I would take a turn down on the rocks, for it was a dark night and you can see much farther when you are by the edge of the water than you can when you are at the masthead. I sat there for an hour, and was thinking that it was about time to go up and turn out the other watch, when I saw something dark upon the water. It wasn't a ship, that was certain, and if it was a boat there wasn't anyone in it, but it was too dark to make quite sure what it was. I watched it for some time, though I did not think much of the thing, taking it for a boat that had got adrift or maybe a barrel from one of the Turkish ships. Presently I made out that it was a good bit nearer than when I first saw it. That puzzled me. There is no tide to speak of in these seas, and there was no wind moving about. I could make out now that it was a boat, though a very small one. But certainly there was no one rowing it. It looked a very strange craft, and as I saw by the way it was bearing that it would come ashore about five or six fathoms from where I was sitting, I slid quietly off the rock, put my sword down by me handy for action, and waited. Presently the boat came up alongside the rock, and a fellow stood up from behind the stern. I was glad to see him, for I had begun to think that there was witchcraft in the thing moving along by itself. But I can tell you I was savage with myself for not having guessed there was a man swimming behind and pushing it on. He stooped over the boat and took something heavy out. Then he felt about among the rocks, under the water, and then laid the thing down there, and seemed to me to be settling at it firm. I had half a mind to jump up and let fly at him, but then I thought it would be better to let him finish what he was doing, and go off with the idea that no one had seen him. So I kept hid until he started again. He waited a short way before he had to swim, and I could see that as he went he was paying out a rope over the stern. It was clear enough now what he had been up to. He had been fixing an anchor. What he did it for, or what use it could be to him, I could not say. But it was certain that he would not take all that trouble with the chance of being knocked on the head for nothing. So I waited for a bit till he had got out of sight, and over to the other side of the port. 
Then I got up and felt about it, and chancing to get my foot under the rope, went right over into the water. After that, you may guess, I was not long in finding the anchor. I unknotted the rope from it and carried it ashore. Then it struck me that the Turks might take it into their heads to give a pull on it in the morning, and if they did, they would find out that their game, whatever it was, had been found out. So I got hold of a stone of about twenty pounds weight, and fastened the rope sand around it. That was enough to prevent the rope getting slack and make them think that it was still fast to the anchor. But, of course, if they pulled hard on it, it would come home directly. I went and reported the matter the first thing this morning to the governor. He seemed to think that it was important, and told me to bring the anchor up to the Grand Master, who would get one of the English knights to find out all about it, for he could not make out much of what I said. It is very important, Gervais said and you behaved very wisely in the matter, and have rendered a great service by your discovery. I will take you in at once to the Grand Master. Still bearing the anchor, the sailor followed Gervais into an apartment where Diabason was taking counsel with some of the senior knights. Pardon my interrupting, your highness, Gervais said, but the matter is so important that I knew you would listen to it, however occupied you were. And he then repeated the narrative of the sailor's discovery. "'This is indeed of the highest importance,' Diabason said, "'and the knowledge that it gives us may enable us to defeat an attempt that might otherwise have proved our ruin. You see, knights, it solves the question that we were just discussing. We agreed that this long floating bridge that they have been constructing was intended to enable them to cross the outer port and again attack St. Nicholas, and yet it seemed to us that even by night our batteries would be able to keep up such a fire on the boats, towing the head of the bridge across, as to render it well-nigh impossible for them to get it over. Now you see what their plan is. With the aid of this rope, the end of which they think is firmly fixed on our side, they mean to haul the bridge across, and that so silently that they hope to be upon us almost before we have time to don our armor. We shall now be fully prepared, and need have no doubt of the result. There could now be little doubt that the attack would be made without loss of time, especially as the Turks believed that they could get their bridge across unseen. The fire-ships, which were altogether more formidable than those Gervais had improvised, were ordered to be made ready for action. This being arranged, the admiral left the council at once, that no time should be lost in getting them in readiness. Diabason then turned to the English sailor, you have rendered us a great service indeed by your vigilance, and showed great prudence by allowing the Turk to believe that he had accomplished his mission unsuspected. Had he thought he had been observed, some other plan would have been adopted. For so great a service it is meet that a great reward should be given. He then took a bag from the hands of one of his secretaries, whom he had sent to fetch it while they were discussing the matter of the fire-ships. "'Here are two hundred golden crowns,' he added, handing the bag to the seaman. 
With these you can either settle on shore or can build a stout ship and pursue your calling. Should you do so, call her the St. Nicholas, in remembrance of the gratitude of the Order of St. John, for your having saved that fort from the Turks. Astonished and delighted at the reward, which represented a very large sum in those days, the sailor stammered his thanks, and added, I hope to-night that if I again have charge of a fireship, I may be able to do more to prove to your highness how grateful I am for the gift. Throughout the day preparations for the defense of St. Nicholas went on unceasingly. Gangs of men, as usual, worked in the breach, but as it was deemed advisable that there should be no outward show of activity that would lead the Turks to suspect that their design had been discovered, neither reinforcements of men nor munitions were sent along the mole, everything being taken out by boats, which, rowing closely along under the wall, were hidden from the view of the Turks. Barrels of Greek fire and pitch, cauldrons for heating the latter, a store of firewood, great balls of cotton steeped in oil and turpentine, sheaves of darts, spikes on short staves, that were, after darkness fell, to be thrust in among the fallen masonry, to form a cheveux de frise. These, and all other matters that the ingenuity of the defenders could suggest, were landed at the water-gate of the fort, while the garrison was strengthened by the addition of a large number of knights. Stores of ammunition were collected in readiness at all the batteries that commanded the mouth of the outer port, and by sunset, Diabasin felt that everything that was possible had been done to meet the impending storm. At midnight the Turkish preparations were complete. The attack by the bridge was to be assisted by a large number of boats and other craft, and many armed galleys were also brought up to destroy or tow away the defenders' fireships. Paleologus himself was down by the shore directing the preparations. Some of his best troops were placed upon the floating bridge, and, when all was ready, the order was given to pull upon the rope. No sooner, however, did the strain come upon it than there was a jerk. The rope slackened, and it was at once evident that the anchor had been discovered, and the well-laid plan disconcerted. Paleologus was furious, but believing that the attack he had arranged would still be irresistible, he ordered a number of boats to take the bridge in tow, while a still larger force was to make a direct attack upon the breach. The movement was to be conducted as silently as possible until it was discovered, and then a dash forward was to be made. It was two o'clock before the fresh arrangements were completed, and the boats put out. They had gone but a short distance when the anxious watchers in St. Nicholas learnt by the dull, confused sound that came across the water, that the attack was, in spite of the failure of the plan to take the bridge silently across, to be persevered in. A cannon was at once fired to give notice to the other batteries to be in readiness, and as soon as the dark mass of boats was made out, the guns of the fort opened a destructive fire upon them, and a moment later were seconded by those from the fortress. These, however, were at present being fired almost at random, as the Turkish boats could not be made out at that distance. Now that all need for concealment was at an end, the Turkish war-cry rose shrilly in the air, 
and the boatmen bent to their oars. The great cannon at St. Anthony's Church hurled their tremendous missiles at the tower, seconded by the fire of a number of other pieces that had in the darkness been brought down almost to the water's edge. As before, the boats swept up to the foot of the breach. The Turks leaped out, and, undismayed by the storm of shot, climbed up to the assault. The short ladders that they had brought with them enabled them to surmount the escarpments so laboriously made, and with loud shouts of Allah they flung themselves upon the defenders on the crest of the breach. Here they were met by a line even more difficult to break through than before. The knights were ranged three deep. Those in the front were armed with swords and battle-axes, while those in the other two lines thrust their spears out between the swordsmen, covering them with a hedge of steel points. Others in the rear brought up buckets of blazing pitch and Greek fire, and, advancing through gaps left for the purpose, hurled the buckets down into the struggling mass on the slope. There the fire not only carried death among the assailants, but the lurid flames enabled the batteries to direct their shot with terrible effect upon the breach. The crowded boats at its foot and the bridge which was with immense labor presently got into position it was not long before fresh light was thrown upon the scene as the fire-ships issuing out from the inner harbor burst into columns of flame and towed by boats came into action they were conveyed by the two galleys each with a full complement of knights and these soon became engaged in a fierce fight with the turkish vessels that bore down to arrest the course of the fire-ships. The scene was indeed a terrible one. The roar of cannon, the shouts of the combatants, the screams of the poor wretches upon whom the terrible Greek fire fell, the clash of arms, and the shouts and cries of the Turks as they pressed across the bridge, united in a din that thrilled with horror the spectators both in the city and on St. Stephen's Hill several of the turkish galleys in their efforts to arrest the approach of the fire-ships towards the bridge became themselves involved in the flames but they were so far successful that when daylight broke the bridge was still intact and the combat at the breach continued to rage with determination and fury on both sides the turks there were led by a brave young prince named ibrahim a near relative of the sultan with whom he was a great favorite and he was ever in the front line of the assailants his splendid bravery animating the soldiers to continue their efforts as the daylight broadened out however the light enabled the christian gunners to aim with far greater accuracy than had before been possible and concentrating their fire upon the bridge across which reinforcements continued to press to the support of the assailants they succeeded in sinking so many of the boats that it was no longer passable next they turned their fire upon the turkish galleys four of which they sank shortly afterwards a ball struck the gallant young leader of the turks who although previously several times wounded had continued to fight in the front line he fell dead and his followers disheartened by his fall and by the destruction of the bridge at once abandoned their efforts and rushed down to the foot of the breach 
the terrible scene enacted at the repulse of the previous attack was now repeated the concentrated fire of the guns of the defenders carried destruction into the crowded mass some gained the boats that still remained uninjured and rowed for the opposite shore the greater number rushed into the water and strove to recross it either by swimming or by the aid of the debris of the shattered boats their total loss was greater even than that suffered by them in the first attack between two and three thousand being either killed or drowned among them a number of their best officers the amount of spoil in the form of rich jewels and costly gold ornaments found on the bodies of the dead piled on the breach was very great for three days after this terrible repulse the turks were inactive the pasha remaining shut up in his tent refusing to see any one or to issue orders at the end of that time he roused himself from his stupor of grief and disappointment and abandoning the idea of any further attack upon the point that had cost him so dearly he ordered the troops to move round and renew the attack upon the wall in front of the jews quarter and commence the construction of a battery on the edge of the great ditch facing the retrenchment behind the breach before effected the knights of italy and spain determined to seize the opportunity of retrieving the disgrace that had fallen upon them at night they descended into the deep cutting carrying across their ladders and silently mounting the opposite side rushed with loud shouts into the unfinished battery the turks there taken utterly by surprise made but a slight resistance a few were immediately cut down and the rest fled panic-stricken the knights at once set the woodwork of the battery on fire hurled the guns down into the ditch and then returned triumphantly into the town the dashing feet completely reinstating them in the good opinion of the grand master and their comrades the incident showed the pasha that he must neglect no precautions and accordingly he commenced his works at a distance from the walls and pushed his approaches regularly forward until he again established a battery on the site of that which his troops had been so unceremoniously ejected while forming the approaches the workmen had been constantly harassed by the fire from the guns on the walls suffering considerable loss of life but their numerical superiority was so vast that the loss in no way affected the plans of the pasha as soon as the battery was completed gangs of men accustomed to mining operations set to work in its rear to drive sloping passages downwards opening into the face of the great cutting and through these vast quantities of earth and stone were poured so as to afford a passage across it the depth being largely diminished by the great pile of rubbish that had already fallen from their breached wall this novel method of attack was altogether unexpected the knights had regarded the fosse that had been cut at such an enormous expenditure of labor as forming an altogether impassable obstruction and were dismayed at seeing the progress made in filling it up the abbasin himself full of resources as he was saw that the defense was seriously threatened unless some plan of meeting this unexpected danger could be devised he consulted maitre george's but the latter could make no suggestion his only advice being the erection of a battery at a spot where it was almost self-evident that it could be of no utility whatever 
Other circumstances combined to render the suspicions D'Aubison had entertained of the good faith of the renegade almost a certainty. Georges was seized, tried, and put to torture, and under this owned that he had been sent into the town for the purpose of betraying it, and he was the same day hung in the great square. His guilt must always be considered as uncertain. There was no proof against him, save his own confession, and a confession extorted by torture is of no value whatever. There are certainly many good grounds for suspicion, but it is possible that Georges really repented his apostasy, and acted in good faith in deserting the standard of Paleologus. He was undoubtedly a man of altogether exceptional ability and acquirements, and even the knights who have written accounts of the siege do justice to the fascination of his manner and the charm of his conversation. Diabasin now set to work in another direction to counteract the efforts of the Turks. He erected an immense wooden catapult, which threw huge pieces of rock into the midst of the Turkish works, crushing down the wooden screens erected to hide their approaches, breaking in the covered ways, and causing great loss of life among the besiegers. At the same time, galleries were driven below the breach, opening into the ditch, where their exits were concealed by masses of rubbish. Through these, strong working parties issued out at night, and carried away up the passages the rocks and other materials that the Turks had during the day, brought with immense labor from a distance to the chute. The materials so carried away were piled up behind the retrenchment, greatly adding to its thickness and strength. For some days the Turks observed, to their astonishment, that the road they were constructing across the ditch was diminishing instead of increasing in bulk, and at length it became so evident that the garrison were in some way removing the materials that the pasha determined to deliver the assault before the heap was so far diminished as to become impassable. His former defeats had, however, taught him that success could not be always calculated upon, however good its prospect might appear, and although he had no real hope that the defenders would yield, he sent a formal summons for them to do so. This was refused with disdain, and preparations were at once made for the assault. The pasha promised to his soldiers the sack of the town and all the booty captured, and so assured were they of success that sacks were made to carry off the plunder, stakes on which the knights when taken prisoners were to be impaled were prepared and sharpened and each soldier carried a coil of rope with which to secure his captive before ordering the assault the way was prepared for it by a terrible fire from every siege gun of the turks this was kept up for twenty-four hours and so tremendous was the effect that the knights were unable to remain on the ramparts the turkish troops moved into position for attack their movements being covered by the roar of the guns, and soon after sunrise on the 22nd of July the signal was given, and at a number of different points the Turks rushed to the assault. All these attacks, save that on the breach, were merely feints, to distract the attention of the garrison, and to add to the confusion caused by this sudden and unexpected onslaught. The Pasha's plans were well designed and carried out, the knights, unable to keep their places on the ramparts under the storm of missiles, had retired to shelter behind the walls. There was no thought of an instant assault, as they considered that this would not be delivered until the new wall behind the breach had been demolished. 
Consequently, the rush of the Turks found the defenders altogether unprepared. Swarming across the mass of debris in the ditch, they ascended the breach without opposition, and their scaling ladders were placed against the new wall before the knights could hurry up to its defense. Even before the alarm was given in the town, the Turkish standard was waving on the parapet, and the Muslims were crowding onto the wall in vast numbers. The suddenness of the attack, the complete surprise, the sound of battle at various points around the walls, caused for a time confusion and dismay among the knights, charged with the defense of the wall facing the breach. Roused by the uproar, the inhabitants of the town rushed up to their roofs to ascertain what was happening, and their cries of wild terror and alarm at seeing the Turkish banner on the walls added to the confusion. Diabasin sprang up from the couch on which he had thrown himself in full armor at the first sound of the alarm, and sending off messages to all the Aberges to summon every man to the defense, ran down into the town, followed by a small party of knights. Rushing through the streets, now filled with half-dressed people, wild with terror, he reached the foot of the wall, whose summit was crowded with the enemy, and saw in an instant that all was lost unless they could be driven thence without delay. The effect of his presence was instantaneous. The knights, hitherto confused and dismayed, rallied at once, and prepared for the desperate undertaking. The bank on the inside was almost perpendicular, and those charged with its defense had used two or three ladders for ascending to the rampart. These were at once seized and planted against the wall. The position of the contending parties was now reversed. The Christians were the assailants, the Turks the defenders. Diabasin himself was the first to ascend, covering his head with his shield. He mounted the rampart, but ere he could gain a footing on the top he was severely wounded and hurled backwards. Again he made the attempt, but was again wounded and thrown down. Once more he mounted, and this time made good his footing. A moment later, Gervais, who had accompanied him from the palace, stood beside him. Animated with the same spirit as his leader, he threw himself recklessly against the Turks, using a short heavy mace, which in a melee was far more useful than the long sword. Smiters clashed upon his helmet and armor, but at each blow he struck a Turk fell, and for each foot he gained a knight sprang onto the wall and joined him. Each moment their number increased, and the war-cry of the order rose louder and fiercer above the din. The very number of the Turks told against them. Crowded together as they were, they could not use their weapons effectually, and pressing fiercely upon them, the knights drove them back along the wall on either hand, hurling them down into the street or over the rampart. On so narrow a field of battle, the advantage was all on the side of the knights, whose superior height and strength and the protection afforded by their armor rendered them almost invincible. Nerved as they were with fury at the surprise that had overtaken them, and the knowledge that the fate of the city depended upon their efforts, after a quarter of an hour's desperate conflict, the Turks were driven down the partial breach effected in the wall by the last bombardment, and the Christians were again the masters of their ramparts. Paleologus, however, hurried up reinforcements headed by a band of janissaries whose valor had decided many an obstinate conflict before ordering them to advance 
he gave instructions to a company of men of approved valor to devote all their efforts to attacking D'Aubison himself, whose mantle and rich armor rendered him a conspicuous object among the defenders of the breach. Advancing to the attack, the Janissaries burst through the mass of Turks, still continuing the conflict, and rushed up the breach. Then the chosen band, separating from the rest, flung themselves upon the Grand Master, the suddenness and fury of their attack isolating him and Gervais from the knights around. Surrounded as he was by foes, already suffering from two severe wounds, and shaken by his falls from the ladder, the Grand Master yet made a valiant defense in front, while Gervais, hurling his mace in the face of one of his assailants, and drawing his two-handed sword, covered him from the attack from behind. Diabasin received two more severe wounds, but still fought on. Gervais, while in the act of cutting down an assailant, heard a shout of triumph from behind, and looking round he saw the Grand Master sinking to the ground from another wound. With a cry of grief and fury, Gervais sprang to him, receiving as he did so several blows on his armor and shield intended for the fallen knight, and standing across him showered his blows with such strength and swiftness that the Janissary shrank back before the sweep of the flashing steel. More than one who tried to spring into close quarters fell cleft to the chin, and ere his assailants could combine for a general rush, a body of knights, who had just beaten off their assailants, fell upon the ranks of the Janissaries with a force and fury there was no withstanding, and the chosen troops of the Sultan for the first time broke and fled. Excited almost to madness by the sight of their beloved master stretched bleeding on the ground, the knights dashed down the breach in eager pursuit. This action was decisive of the fate of the struggle. The panic among the Janissaries at once spread, and the main body of troops, who had hitherto valiantly striven to regain the advantage snatched from them, now lost heart and fled in confusion, but their escape was barred by the great body of reinforcements pressing forward across the heap of rubbish that formed the breach over the deep ditch. Maddened by fear, the fugitives strove to cut a way through their friends. The whole of the defenders of the breach now fell upon the rear of the struggling mass, hewing them down almost without resistance while the cannon from the walls and towers kept up an unceasing fire until the last survivors of what had become a massacre succeeded in gaining their works beyond the ditch and fled to their camp from every gateway and postern the knights now poured out and gathering together advanced to the attack of st stephen's hill they met with but a faint resistance the greater portion of the disorganized troops had made no pause at their camp but had continued their headlong flight through the harbor, where their ships were moored. Paleologus himself, heartbroken and despairing at his failure, sharing their flight. The camp, with all its rich booty and the great banner of the Pasha, fell into the hands of the victors, who, satisfied with their success and exhausted by their efforts, made no attempt to follow the flying foe or to hinder their embarkation, for even now the Turks, enormously outnumbering them as they did, might be driven by despair to a resistance so desperate as once again to turn the tide of victory. End of chapter 22 Read by Peter Strom in Sylvia, Columbia On February 7, 2019